Last week in um, introducing our series on the prophets, I, um, I asked you to remember that among other things, in a prophet's job description is a prophet comes to comfort and to warn, and a prophet's job is to wage war against idolatry, that is, wage war against loving anything or anyone more than God. There's a good working definition for us for idolatry, loving anyone or anything more than God. And I also have asked you to remember and to reflect on throughout this series uh, a couple of characteristics about prophets themselves. One, that they too are imperfect, just like us. And in their imperfection, God often wrestles with that imperfection and relates it often to the very message that they're bringing, as we'll see in a minute uh, in our prophet Amos. Beginning this week, um, oh, and I also asked you to remember that um, prophets tend to be eccentric, and maybe even a little weird. Uh, they stand out a bit from the norm, as our prophet Amos does this morning too, but maybe in a way we don't expect. So beginning this week and throughout the series, we'll start looking at several individual prophets. It's going to be a flyby uh, because uh, to do any one prophet on one Sunday morning um, is tough, but um, there's power in surveying all of them tightly together too. So this morning's prophet is Amos, uh, at least a snapshot of Amos, the man and his message. First, the man. What do we know about Amos? Amos's hometown is a village called Tekoa. A small rural village five miles south and east of Bethlehem. And it's interesting that uh, we note that because Amos is from the south of Judah. He's a southerner, but he's sent by God to the north. And his prophecy is primarily, at least, and most directly, at least, for the northern kingdom. And so Amos is an outsider uh, must have seemed a bit eccentric and strange to those northerners that a southerner would come. Long-standing tradition tells us Amos is a shepherd, but uh, nearly every biblical scholar that um, I looked at today thinks that Amos was instead, perhaps a better translation is a wealthy rancher or a farmer uh, most translations, including the NIV, call Amos a shepherd, and that's a fine translation of the word used there in Hebrew. But that Hebrew word is not the usual Hebrew word for shepherd. It's a different one, and as archaeology helps us unearth contextual context in doing word studies, they now th think that the word used there for shepherd leans toward a wealthy rancher or farmer. And while we might think, well, who cares whether Amos was a shepherd or a wealthy rancher or a plumber or an electrician, um, it has some bearing in some of that incarnational emphasis perhaps in Amos's very message when we consider that he may have been wealthy and well acquainted with money. Um, more on that in a minute. Uh, Amos's ministry was around the year 760 B.C., 
some 40 years before the Assyrians came and brought down the calamity against Israel that Amos warns about. He's the first of the classical prophets, meaning the first whose name is um, a book of the Bible, the first whose prophecies were written down, and uh, other prophets whose ministry overlapped or at least were very close in time with the ministry of Amos includes Hosea and Micah and Isaiah, also on our list uh, to consider in this series. And last, um, Amos, like the other prophets, finds himself compelled to be God's prophet. There's a reluctance almost, and that's a fascinating characteristic, I think, uh, across the board for the biblical prophets. You can make that case. They aren't, uh, they aren't all that eager to be a prophet. We'll explore that more when we get to Jeremiah, uh, perhaps the most reluctant prophet of all. But Amos, too, tells us that the reason he's taken up the job, the reason he's there in the north, is because he heard a lion roar from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, in the somewhat poetic context of that passage in Amos, meaning from the temple where in Jerusalem God's house was. And so the lion roaring from the temple is none other than God. And so Amos says, the lion of Judah, the Lord has roared. He's spoken, Amos says. So who can but prophesy? He has to prophesy. He must do it. He has to comfort and warn. He must engage the war against idolatry because God is roaring from his temple that he do so. That's the man, at least a snapshot of what we know about Amos. And Now one of his message, and oh, if you've taken the time to read through Amos this past week or even the passages that I posted online, then you know that that Lion of Judah, he is roaring indeed, yes? As we know, a prophet's job is to comfort as well as to warn but while the book of Amos ends on a, a brief note of hope and comfort, so brief it almost seems out of place and tempts some scholars to suggest it was tacked on later. A majority, including me, feels it is a part of the original, but it's so short and seemingly out of context because the bulk of Amos's book, oh my goodness, those warning passages in Amos, they're among the harshest that we'll read in all of Scripture. God is very, very angry. And he is roaring indeed in fierce anger. And the $64 million question for this morning, at least one of them at least is this, why? Why is it that God is so upset? Why is it that he's so angry? I mean, you take the example of Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve have just sinned, and God comes into the garden and confronts them. And you'd think, 
that we'd find there that God would be angry. If there's anything to be angry about, it might be that, that first original sin, pretty huge in Genesis 3, yes? But even in Genesis 3, not one mention of God being angry or God's wrath there. Instead, God gives them garments after warning them what life will be like considering their choice to try it on their own. But in Amos, God's wrath is repeatedly mentioned. What is it there in that time? What's going on in Amos where God seems to be at least more angry than even the first original sin in Genesis 3? And we find that answer throughout the chapters of Amos. Here's a sample for us this morning. See if you can tell what thread they have in common. What is it that has God so angry? Amos writes, I will not turn back my wrath against Damascus, says the Lord, because she threshed the people of Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will not turn my wrath back my wrath against Gaza or Tyre because they sold whole communities of captives to Edom. I will not turn my back my wrath against Edom because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land. I will not turn my wrath back against Ammon because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. And as for Israel, the children of Israel, God says, I will not turn back my wrath because she sells the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over and we may sell grain? And when's the Sabbath going to end that we can market the wheat? skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling, selling even the sweepings of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. And then God goes on to describe the terrible punishment that is coming, and we can read about in the Bible and in history when the Assyrian invasion comes, and it is absolutely horrible. And what is it? What is it exactly that has God so angry? Could you catch a thread? How would you summarize it? Here's my summary. God is angry. He is roaring because the poor and the oppressed, the weak, the hurting, the lonely, the lowly, the needy, the sick are being abused. And what's worse? They're being abused by his people who know better.
There is nothing, my friends, that I can find in all of Scripture. Nothing even close that gets God up so quickly off of his long-suffering and patient throne that when the rich and the wealthy and the powerful abuse the poor, nothing. Many, some want to focus on the wrath of God contained in these and other harsh judgment passages and, and they're tempted or, or they wonder how on earth can such a God who can become so angry and have so much wrath indeed be a God who is love? And bad theology even comes out of this apparent contradiction between God's wrath and and His love. Bad theology that says, well, that's the Old Testament wrathful God. And in the New Testament, the somehow unchanging God, in fact, changes and becomes this God of love. Oh, I strongly disagree with that theology. Here's what that opinion misses in my opinion. See what you think. The reason, the reason for God's wrath in the Bible is because of his love. He loves people so much that he can't stand it when they suffer at the hands of others. He can't stand it because he is love. And it gets him especially angry when those abusing the poor are his people who know better. You see, in other words, for God to be less angry over abuse of the poor would mean he loves them less. Why is God so hopping angry? Why is the wrath roaring in Amos and the prophets? Because he loves the broken. He loves the poor. He loves the wounded and the sick and the hurting and those who are being abused. He loves them that much. He hurts as much as if those awful things are being done to him. That's how much he loves. See, I think a more accurate picture of God exercising his wrath, and it's not one you often see or heard or hear, but I think it's the biblical view. See what you think. I think the more biblical picture of God exercising his wrath is he does so sobbing and weeping and mourning uncontrollably, regretfully, that it's all come to this because of their poor choices. Not out of a God who is vengeful, or who enjoys bringing it down the throats of the wicked. Many like the movie Braveheart. I'm sure many of you have seen it, where William Wallace fights for freedom. I like the movie too. There are some redeeming things in it, but One thing it misses, I think, 
in my opinion, is it leans toward, it invites some perhaps in glorifying war and fighting and killing. Yes, there's the most just cause behind it. Wallace, at least as depicted in this movie, is fighting for the poor and the oppressed. But he almost seems to relish the brutal judgment that he brings. And if he's doing that, at least, that is not, in my opinion, a picture of our God, let alone Jesus Christ. I don't think God relishes it at all. To me, the God in the Bible sobs in grief as the outcome of people's choices inevitably brings punishment by their choice. Maybe that's why God tells us to be careful to leave judgment to him because he knows how difficult, how impossible even it is for us to do it without relishing it, without pride in bringing judgment. And you remember what I said about Amos, let alone all the prophets, being reluctant? You know, we so often view that as a negative, right? We stand there with Moses at the burning bush and hear him try to get out of it. How many of you have read that passage or, you, you know, yeah, and you feel like, oh, come on, Moses. Here's another take on that. Did you ever consider that that may be a prerequisite for being an effective man or woman of God? A reluctance, at least, to be a messenger, let alone an agent in partnership of things like punishment? Maybe we need to be reluctant. Maybe we need to make sure that we have empathy and love, even to, especially, to those who are lost before God can use us in powerful ways. And then this is underpinning God's anger. See, the people made a covenant with them, and part of their part of the bargain was, and what God wanted them to do is to witness who he is. He took his people and he put them in what scholars call the land between, the land of Canaan, and ran the most major trade route in the known world right through it, the Via Maris, connecting three continents. So everybody came through Israel. He put his people on the median of I-25. Why? So they could witness to all those who came who he is. No different than what he does with us today, by the way. And here God's people were in a time of great prosperity not seen since Solomon. Here they were witnessing that who God is 
is a God that takes advantage of the poor and the oppressed. And it's even then, out of God's love for the lost who don't yet know him, that he has to come and even to the precious children of Abraham has to come in punishment and in judgment because his witness of who he is, love isn't getting out. In fact, 180 degrees, the opposite of who God is is being witnessed by his people. So no wonder he's grievingly angry. The people had forgotten. They'd forgotten their role as a witness of who God is as love. In Deuteronomy 8, I won't take time to read it now, but spend time there if you want an Old Testament passage to read this week. One of my favorite passages, chapters in all the Bible, Deuteronomy 8. God warns his people just before they take possession of the land of Canaan, and I'll paraphrase, when you get it all, when you get rich, when you build houses, when you settle in, when you receive all of these blessed things, oh, be careful that you don't forget me. Because God knows the power of riches and wealth and power. He knows the power of those things in terms of are turning our attention away from him to them and making them idols that we love more. And those words of Deuteronomy 8 turned out to be prophetic by the time Amos comes around. They'd forgotten. I almost uh, am compelled to talk about Tim Tebow this morning. In the middle of looking for an illustration of what a piece of Amos at least is getting at, I came across this article by Rick Riley from ESPN.com. Some of you I know have probably read it. It's been making the, the Facebook postings, and people are all a Twitter. Let me read you a portion. Let me read you a portion from Riley's article. Every week, Riley writes, Tebow picks out someone who is suffering or who is dying or who is injured he flies these people and their families to the Broncos game, rents them a car, puts them up in a nice hotel, buys them dinner, usually at Dave & Buster's, gets them and their families pregame passes, visits with them just before kickoff, gets them 30-yard line tickets down low, visits with them after the game, sometimes for an hour, has them walk him to his car, and sends them off with a basket of gifts. Home or road, win or lose, hero or goat. Remember last week when the world was pulling its hair out in the hour after Tebow had stunned the Steelers with an 80-yard overtime touchdown pass to Demarius Thomas in the playoffs? Yes, I remember. <laughs> and Twitter was exploding with 9,420 tweets about Tebow per second. When an ESPN poll was naming him the most popular athlete in America. T. 
Tebow was spending that hour talking to 16-year-old Bailey Knob about her 73 surgeries so far and what TV show she likes. Here he'd just played the game of his life, recalls Bailey's mother, Kathy, of Loveland, Colorado, and the first thing he does after his press conference is come find Bailey and ask, hey, did you get anything to eat? He acted like what he'd done wasn't anything, like it was all about Bailey. More than that, Tebow kept corralling people into the room for Bailey to meet. Hey, Demarius, come in here a minute. Hey, Mr. Elway. Hey, Coach Fox. And even though sometimes fatal... Wigginers has left Bailey with only one lung. The attention took her breath away. It was the best day of my life, she emailed. It was a bright star among very gloomy and difficult days. Tim Tebow gave me the greatest gift I could ever imagine. He gave me the strength for the future. I know now that I can face any obstacle placed in front of me. Tim taught me to never give up because at the end of the day, today might seem bleak, but it can't rain forever, and tomorrow is a new day with new promises. Riley writes, I read that email to Tebow. And he was honestly floored. Why me? Why should I inspire her? He said, I just don't feel, I don't know, adequate. Really, hearing her story inspires me. Tebow's greatest gift may have nothing to do with playing football. Tebow's greatest gift may well be, I hope it turns out to be, a wake-up call for American Christians to invest in and care for the poor and oppressed and struggling and hurting just like he does with a genuine heart for them just like he has. His greatest gift may well be showing us a sincere heart, showing us someone who despite fame and wealth and power truly is one who loves God and loves others in Jesus' name. Instead, God's people were going through the motions in Amos' day. There's far more than money and wealth and power in Amos's sights. Those things are not evil in and of themselves. Amos calls out, as God warns in Deuteronomy 8, Amos calls out and targets where wealth and power can so easily lead It can lead to going through the motions. Listen to God describe his people going through the motions in Amos and what he says about it. I hate, God says. I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't even smell them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And we read and we find in Amos that people are making the sacrifices and they're singing praises to God and they're even giving beyond their tithe. But it's all form over substance. Where's their heart? You see, being a Christian is just that. Being a Christian. It's more than knowing or understanding about who God is. It's more than simple mental assent into asking Jesus into your heart. You say, all right, I get it. i got to do things too. It's more than doing things too. It's about becoming 
becoming someone who by God's grace has been broken, whose pride has been broken, and who God, in partnering with them, puts them back together in a way with pride gone, they can truly and genuinely love. Love God and love others more than themselves. In Jesus' name. That's evangelism, isn't it? It's more than knowing. It's more than doing. It's becoming, and it's becoming someone who, in following God's word, loves God and loves others. And if love isn't included in the equation of what it means to become or to be a Christian, we have the wrong equation. Do you still hear the lion roaring on behalf of the poor and the oppressed? Who will we become in Christ Jesus that will respond? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the words of your servant and our brother Amos this morning. Help us, Father, to understand and to see that the reason for your righteous anger is when the poor and the lowly and people are abused by the prideful and the rich and the wealthy. Father, forgive us of our pride. Break it down in Jesus' name. And in so doing, through the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, especially in the community of your people, remake us together and in partnership with you in a way that shows unabashedly, untainted, your pure love. I ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, for God's benediction this morning? We haven't recited together Shema or the greatest commandment in a while, so I thought we'd do that for our benediction this morning. Would you say these words after me? Hear, O Israel. Hear, O West Bowles. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. See you soon.